Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for a Therapeutic Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Afi Patel, and I will be your host for today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursday podcast. With me today, we have Erin Kopi, an ambulatory clinical pharmacist at Parkview Health in Bryan, Ohio, Ben Modrell, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy resident at Cox Health in Springfield, Missouri, and Christy Kelly, a clinical professor at the Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy, as well as a clinical pharmacist at Brookwood Baptist Health in Vestavia Hills, Alabama. Thanks for joining us today, Erin, Ben, and Christy. So let's get started talking about today's topic on diabetes treatment guidelines, a review of the 2021 updates and discussion of a patient case. To begin, I will present the patient WW. WW is a 68-year-old black male who presents for an initial pharmacist visit for chronic disease state management with referral from his PCP. He has a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, CKD stage 3, tobacco use, cholelithiasis, induced pancreatitis, status post-cholestectomy in 2017, cabbage in 2007, and hypertriglyceridemia. He reports an allergy to lisinopril with angioedema, and he is currently prescribed nifedipine XL, 60 milligrams once a day for hypertension, metformin XR, 1,000 milligrams twice daily, and Trisiba FlexTouch U200, 80 units once a day for diabetes, and resubostatin 20 milligrams once a day, and aspirin, 81 milligrams once a day for secondary prevention for ASCBD. He smokes tobacco one pack per day for 35 years and denies alcohol and illicit drug use. For his vitals today in clinic include a blood pressure of 143 over 79, heart rate of 77, and BMI of 41.8. His vitals from last visit in October 2020 include a blood pressure of 156 over 87 and heart rate of 79. His hemoglobin A1C today is elevated at 8.8%, down from 9.1% in October 2020. He has an elevated serum creatinine of 1.75 and EGFR of 48. His lipid panel resulted with total cholesterol 231, triglyceride 823, HDL 39, and direct LDL 127. He has an elevated urine albumin creatinine ratio of 303 and all of his other labs are within normal limits. For his immunization record, it reports TwinREx series completed in 2019, flu shot October 2020, Tdap February 2008, and Pneumovax 23 in March 2018. Of note, he is unable to monitor his blood pressures at home, and he doesn't have a blood pressure monitor at home. However, he does check his blood sugars and self-reports an average fasting blood sugar of 145 and an average two-hour post-dinner blood sugar of 211. So before we get started, 
before we review the updates to the diabetes guidelines, Erin, can you walk us through the pharmacotherapy options that may be beneficial for this patient? Yes, thanks, Avni. I'd be happy to go through some of the pharmacotherapeutic options that would work for this patient. And I'm going to start with some of our previous guidelines and work my way through because we have definitely seen an evolution of the ADA standards of care over the past five years. What we've seen, seen stay consistent is that the first-line treatment for diabetes has still con- has consisted of metformin and lifestyle changes over the entire period since 2017. How we select our second line therapy is what has been changing as evidence has grown over the past few years. In the 2017 guidelines, options for second line therapy basically included any diabetes medication as long as there weren't any contraindications for that specific patient. Therefore, you could select from any of the available sulfonylureas, TZDs, DPP-4 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonist, or insulin for add-on therapy. Moving on to 2018 was when we first started to see the diabetes treatment algorithm focus on specific disease states when selecting that second line therapy. This update included the consideration of whether or not your patient had ASCVD when adding on the second medication. If they did have a history of ASCVD, it was recommended to choose a medication that had been shown to reduce major adverse cardiovascular events or cardiovascular mortality. At the time, these medications were empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and liraglutide. Regarding the case that you just presented, WW does have a history of a cabbage, so this is where we start to see a preference for an SGLG2 or a GLP-1 as second line since he does have that history of ASCVD. In 2019, we saw the considerations for patient comorbidities become even more specific. The algorithm branched out into options including whether your patient has ASCVD, heart failure or CKD, a need to minimize hypoglycemia, a need to promote weight loss or minimize weight gain, or if cost is a major consideration for the patient. With the 2020 update, these same categories were included, further emphasizing the need to select therapy based on a patient's specific comorbidities. When applying the 2019 and 2020 guidelines to our case with WW, we would want to take into consideration his history of ASCVD, CKD stage 3, and obesity with a BMI of 41.8, which was indicating a need to promote weight loss in this patient. Now, this year's 2021 ADA standards of care continue to break down second-line therapies based on specific disease states even further, and I'll turn it over to Ben to further describe these changes. Awesome, Erin. Thank you so much for sharing this detailed evolution of the diabetes guidelines. It sounds very comprehensive. A lot has changed since 2017, which I noticed, and more specific guidance has allowed for therapy selection over the years. Is that correct? Yes, that's definitely correct. We've seen more of a focus on what the individual patient has, their other comorbidities, other considerations, such as cost that we may need to look at when we're selecting that second line therapy. Awesome. So now transitioning to the recent guideline updates, Ben, can you walk us through pertinent changes that were implemented? Yeah. So I'd love to discuss the new updates and recommendations that we have within the guidelines So first, I would just like to start off by mentioning that the ADA, they just put out their 2021 standards of care uh, guidelines. So that's where you're going to be able to see and read everything that I'm referencing uh, within these specific updates. So within these guidelines, the pharmacists really like to hone in on section nine. So that is the pharmacologic approaches section. 
And in here, I'm sure most people are familiar with, or they've seen some version of these treatment algorithm diagrams that Aaron talked about before. And this is particularly for the patients who have type 2 diabetes. So going to the 2021 guidelines, so same as before, we have our metformin lifestyle changes as our first-line therapy. And then the big updates that have come into play with all the landmark literature and trials that have been coming at us full speed these past few years uh, is where we see all these changes. So Aaron pointed out earlier that the previous guidelines, they've been giving different recommendations based on the comorbid uh, disease states and past medical histories. So I'll be doing a little bit of a deeper dive into where we got these recommendations and how they fall particularly within these current 2021 guidelines. So the most significant disease states that we have literature supporting the use of specific medications is those patients falling under the ASCVD category, the heart failure category, and the CKD category. So I particularly want to call out the use of our SGLT2 inhibitors and our GLP-1 receptor agonists in the setting of all these different disease states. So with that being said, we'll start with ASCVD, that branch. So this is pretty much unchanged for, from the past few years, but I'll kind of go into why there are certain recommendations. So in the 2021 treatment algorithm, they state that if patients have a cardiac history or are at high risk, so those patients who are 55 and older, if they have any kind of significant stenosis, so these patients are indicated to take either or a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 with proven cardiovascular benefit in addition to their metformin and lifestyle changes. And then if those patients need further intensification of glycemic control and they're unable to tolerate either the SGLT-2 or a GLP-1, then they should trial the other class of medication. So for example, if someone has a history of an NSTEMI, they trial a GLP-1, they don't tolerate it, they should then be trialed on an SGLT2. So let's kind of get into the specifics of these medications. So with our GLP-1s, we have multiple that have proven cardiovascular benefit within the landmark trials. So these trials uh, are pretty much looking at three-point major adverse cardiac events or the three-point MACE that we've all heard of, um, and that's the primary outcome. So these three points include non-fatal stroke, uh, non-fatal uh, non myocardial infarction, and also cardiovascular death. So given that information, there have been three trials that have shown uh, statistical significance in reducing these cardiovascular events. So we fought, saw these benefits in the, the LEADER trial. That's where they use uh, liraglutide or Victoza. We saw it in SUSTAIN-6, and that's where they used subcutaneous semaglutide or Ozempic. And then we also saw it in the REWIND trial, and that's where they used dulaglutide or Trulicity. And unfortunately, with our newer agent, Rebelsis, that's the oral semaglutide, they didn't find any cardiovascular outcomes of significance there. So the other GLP-1s, they've been studied, but there are not much significant findings with the others compared to these three. And again, the three with a lot of significance would be liraglutide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide. Next is the SGLT2s within our ASCVD risk reduction population. So they too looked at the three-point MACE, that major adverse cardiac events, as their primary outcome within their trials. And we saw significance in the CAMIS trial. That's where they used canagliflozin or Imbicana. We saw in the EMPA-REG trial, Empagliflozin or Jardian's had statistical significance. 
And we saw in the declare Timmy 58 trial, uh, Depagalfos in our first SEGA also had significance. So our other kind of outlier SGLT2 is the ertuglaflozin, and that was Ciclatro. And they studied that uh, in the Virtus CV trial, but they didn't find any statistical significance here. Um, so incidentally, within these SGLT2 inhibitor trials, they found uh, heart failure and kidney benefits as their secondary outcomes. So that warranted further studies that I'll get into. And uh, we see that within the updates and the recommendations. So getting into heart failure in the 2021 ADA treatment algorithm, the patients who have HEF-REF, so ejection fraction that they specify at less than 45%, they recommend an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven benefit. And this recommendation uh, stems from two particular trials. And within these trials, they looked at patients who have uh, New York Heart Association class uh, two through four, and they studied a composite of endpoints such as heart failure hospitalization, worsening heart failure, cardiovascular death. So we saw significant, uh, significant difference in benefit in the DAPA-HF trial. That's where they used dapagliflozin, and also the emperor-reduced trial. Um, so the number needed to treat for both of these was 21 and 19 patients, respectively, which is pretty good. And of note, the emperor reduced where they used the empagliflozin. That trial was published in 2020. So therefore, empagliflozin, they didn't have the evidence to be recommended within the 2020 algorithm. So that's something new that we see this year because of that trial. So interestingly, in these two trials, they, they studied these heart failure benefits even in those patients who didn't have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and they found significant findings with those patients as well. So I'm kind of curious to see how this information may affect our next heart failure guideline updates from the ACC AHA organizations. Lastly here, let's get into CKD. So this is gonna be the most significant update within the current treatment algorithm. Uh, and that's again, the patients who have type two diabetes and diagnosed CKD. So the 2020 standards of care they didn't include a separate branch in their recommendations for CKD. It was kind of lumped within heart failure. But the literature here is pretty fresh, so that's why we have this whole new branch that is in the 2021 treatment algorithm. So directly coming from this algorithm, the ADA states that those patients who have CKD and albuminuria, an SGLT2 inhibitor with primary evidence of reducing CKD progression is recommended. And if they have CKD but no albuminuria, either an SGLT2 or GLP-1 can be used. And there's two major trials backing this particular recommendation. So we had the Credence and the DAPA-CKD trial. So that Credence was canagliflozin and DAPA-CKD was dapagliflozin. And these trials, they studied very similar endpoints. So they looked at composite of renal death, um, an EGFR decline of 50% or more, or more doubling of serum creatinine and progression to end-stage renal disease. And both of these studies found significant benefit with the renal outcomes. Um, so the number ne needed to treat within these was 23 patients and 19 patients. So very similar uh, in both studies. And also of note, the DAPA-CKD trial was a little bit different because they did include patients who didn't have type 2 diabetes. And they also saw this renal benefit and deemed the medication to be safe in this population. So I'm curious to see if nephrologists will eventually have enough buy-ins to start using dapagliflozin 
in our non-diabetic CKD population to prevent that progression of their kidney disease. So I do want to mention, too, that empagliflozin, which is our other primary SGLT2, they're currently undergoing a study for the renal benefits, as we saw in the other two. And this landmark name is called Kidney, and we are expecting that to be completed in June of this year, June 2021. And if I had to guess, I think we'll find renal benefits within this medication as well. Last kind of thing I wanted to plug in here, so just tying in that literature with our type 2 diabetics and patients who have CKD, Cadigo, they actually put out a set of guidelines in 2020 uh, for the management of their renal patients who have diabetes. And they state uh, directly, so I'm quoting this from them, most patients with type 2 diabetes, CKD, and EGFR greater than or equal to 30 would benefit from treatment with metformin and an SGLT2 inhibitor. So I just wanted to point this out because it's it's kind of cool that other major guidelines are implementing this data into their treat re- treatment recommendations as well. We're so focused on, you know, what does the ADA have to say, but we can see that the other major guidelines out there are also adapting to this new information. Um, so yeah, those are the major updates within the recent years and all the literature supporting it. And again, the CKD section, that's the newest part of the 2021 standards of care. And I can only imagine this treatment algorithm is going to continue to expand with the handful of clinical trials that are currently in the pipeline. Wow, this sounds like a lot of exciting new evidence that we have here for SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 as well for both ASCVD, history of ASCVD, and then also for patients with heart failure. And it's exciting to see especially the new um, evidence available for CKD and helping reduction with the CKD progression. Also, I do know that it looks like there might be some updates with the heart failure guidelines as well, the GDMT with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And so I'm excited to read the new guidelines that were um, updated in the past few days. Now, tying everything back to patient WW, Christy, would you be able to help set the stage for things to consider when evaluating treatment options for this patient? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think we've had a good, you know, discussion so far about kind of where we are and and where we want to go and, you know, how those guidelines that we see um, can help direct us. But, you know, as I look at somebody like WW and think about being in clinic and working with the the residents and, and students and thinking about, you know, how do we manage somebody like this? I think one thing that really comes to mind is, you know, a lot of times we get so focused on what does this guideline say? What does something else say? And Ben did a nice job of really connecting those guidelines. And I think that's helpful as we're managing these patients because we're not managing somebody, you know, in isolation with just their one disease state. We really do have to think about them from head to toe. We talk about that a lot in clinic. You know, you try to deal with whatever's the most urgent issue, but clearly we still need to think about all of their other disease states. So I think really having that comprehensive approach is something important to consider to think about not only just we need to get, you know, the blood sugars under control. We're always, you know, focused on that. I tell patients all the time, we're not the numbers police, even though sometimes it seems like we are, but we want to think about how do we approach those numbers, but we need to think about, you know, are there other screenings that we need to do? How do we continue to appropriately manage the patient's, you know, other comorbidities and complications? And then, 
you know, prevent other complications from progressing. You know, we talked about the vaccination history for the patient. So thinking about even things like that, you know, are we missing vaccines? Do we need to think about that overall? And how should we approach this patient? You know, when I'm thinking about a patient like this, you know, I think a couple, you have to kind of start somewhere and where should you start? And there's probably not one right way to approach it. But thinking in particular about, okay, the patient's, you know, 68 years old, we know they have these comorbidities. We've been talking about, you know, a couple of different ways that we could approach that. But thinking specifically in this patient, some things that kind of stood out to me that would help me direct how I would manage the patients, the fact that the patient's got a history of hypertension, they have cholelithiasis-induced pancreatitis, status post um, cholecystectomy. Um, so that might change, you know, how we would approach things. Thinking about that the patients, you know, got a known diagnosis of stage three CKD, that they have a history of cabbage. So that, you know, obviously qualifies as having ASCVD risk uh, or ASCVD, sorry, that we've been um, talking about when we think about the guidelines um, and really needing to think, you know, how does that overall approach you know, all of these other disease states, what does that mean when we're trying to think about how do we approach the patient? So, you know, I then usually am trying to think about, okay, well, what is the patient already taking? And so really going back, you know, if we want to go back to the guidelines, we're meeting criteria on that, right? The patient's already on metformin, that's first-line therapy, that's been consistent, certainly in the ADA guidelines, and so that's appropriate. We know that the patient's really on max effective dose on metformin XR, 1,000 milligrams, BID. We're still okay for him to continue that with his current renal function. That's something that's, you know, kind of continued to progress. And we alluded to that a little bit through the guidelines. Um, you know, we, we definitely still need to monitor renal function and we know we're looking at those EGFR cut points, but he's still okay right now. So we don't have to stop that. And then the patient's already injecting themselves with insulin. So he's on Traceba. Uh, which remember is insulin to Glulec. And that's one of our long, really long acting insulins. And so that's nice. Um, but, you know, when we look at our current guidelines, really even thinking back to the 20, I think it was 2019, 2020 edition of the guidelines, when we look at injectable therapy, you know, they kind of started ramping up that whole figure. I think it's figure 9.2 in the current guidelines about what do you do and how do you approach injectable therapy? And really with our 2021 version, they're saying, well, you really should consider using a GLP-1 first before you consider using you know, putting the patients on insulin. Well, our patient's already on insulin. So, you know, what do you do at this point? How do you consider and, and, you know, do you backtrack? Do we stop the insulin? Should we just go back to a GLP-1? Um, so those are some things that kind of came to mind. There's a, a push in the current version of the guidelines in the 2021 that talks, um, they've added a statement about the potential for over-basalization. And I'll be honest, that's probably not something I think about a whole lot, but really we should. Um, so really thinking about, you know, is the patient on more than 0.5 units per kilogram per day of basal insulin? And if so, you know, how does that direct what we want to do? Do we need to be adding in, you know, a type of prandial insulin? Do we need to maybe decrease the amount of basal insulin that they're on, you know, thinking about tweaking other therapies and how does all of that, you know, come to play. So when you look at this particular patient, you know, he's on the uh, Traceba U280 units a day. So that's just over the 0.5 units per kilogram per day. So that might be an argument for why we wouldn't add more Traceba to him at this point and really look at some of these other options. 
Um, you know, I also would want to look at his, you know, average blood glucoses that um, Avni talked about. And so his average fasting, I believe was 145. His average two hour post supper was 211. So you really try to think about, okay, well, how does that direct what we would need to target? You know, when I look at that and his current A1C is 8.8, I really think, you know, it'd be nice if we could target something that would help with those postperennial numbers. But, you know, certainly we could argue is that fasting, you know, a little above where we need for it to be. Part of that then comes back to, well, what's our goal A1C for him? You know, is he somebody we really want to push to be less than seven? Are we really just talking if we could keep in the seven to 7.5 range? You know, that would be a discussion to have, you know, with the patient and, and other parties that were helping manage him and just seeing, you know, is he experiencing hypoglycemia? You know, does he how faithful is he to be able to test, you know, and try to kind of work through some of those types of things. So when I look at all of that, then I come back to and think, okay, you know, you're probably still talking about that we would need an A1C lowering of at least 1%, right? And really potentially even 1.5 or 2%. So, you know, we know we're going to need to do something else, um, add other therapy. Obviously, that's kind of the discussion we're having. But um, obviously, the other piece of that is to consider the role of non-pharmacologic therapy and really making sure that we're, you know, kind of seeing where we are on that, what's practical for this patient, given maybe some of his other comorbidities and other potential limitations, or what does he have access, you know, uh, what is he comfortable doing? We're still, you know, you may be listening to this when we're still in pandemic world. And so, you know, does he have the ability to get out? Does he have access, you know, to a support system to help with, you know, physical activity? Does he feel comfortable with doing that? So, um, you know, thinking of all of those things and then going back to those algorithms we've been talking about um, that Aaron and Ben um, described so well for us, you know, really the two things that um, from those side of things that are going to guide really what's the next therapy to use are really the fact that he's got stage three CKD and that he has that history of cabbage so that established ASCVD risk. And so, you know, that leads us back to the GLP-1 receptor agonist and or an SGLT2. And of course, that's a whole nother discussion to think about, do we just do one or would you do both? Um, and that certainly is something that we're going to continue that discussion on. But I really, when I start thinking about what makes the most sense in this patient, you know, what wins out? Are you winning out more on that we're more concerned and want to do therapy that's going to impact that ASCVD? Are you more concerned about CKD? You know, his EGFR is at 48 so I feel like you could make an argument really to go either direction with the GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of start leaning towards the SGLT-2 inhibitor, just thinking about the evidence that we have at this point in time. I'm a huge GLP-1 receptor agonist fan and, you know, like to try to use those in clinic. I think he's already injecting himself. So I feel like we've kind of already overcome the, would you be willing to give yourself an injection? Um, so, you know, you, that to me throws another kind of kink in things from a standpoint of really, you could do either. Um, but I also think when we're trying to think about the patient overall from a management side of things, wanting to think about doing things that not only, you know, minimizes hypoglycemia risk, because, you know, if nothing else, because of his comorbidities and his age, but then also trying to minimize weight gain, his BMI is 41.8. So if anything, we'd want to do something that could help reduce his weight. Um, and then 
trying to think about the cost of things. So here we are, you know, it's January, 2021. And so we're at the beginning of the year. Um, the patient's got 68. So he's got some type of, you know, probably part D plan. And what does that mean from a coverage side of things as far as what he'd be able to get access you know, to the particular medications and really being able to target that. So I think that, you know, those are the types of things that come to mind is, does he have the the funds to be able to get something? What's covered under his plan? That continues to evolve. Um, we know that the beginning of a plan year is always exciting to try to determine what's covered, what can patients afford, you know, what has changed. Um, so, you know, I think, as we've talked today, we really are back to probably the next guideline-driven therapy for him would be an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist and just kind of trying to weigh what's most feasible for him because we really, at this point, can't rule anything out. Christy, I love the holistic patient view on how you're approaching this patient and all the important pieces that we should all consider when we're thinking through this patient uh, case and thinking about the new guideline updates as well, kind of combining what Aaron had discussed and also what Ben discussed. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. I want to thank Aaron, Ben, and Christy for joining us today to discuss diabetes treatment guidelines, a review of 2021 updates and discussion of a patient case. Stay tuned for part two of this podcast series where speakers will take a deeper dive into patient WW, discuss GLP-1 agonist, SGLT2 inhibitors, and really address concerns surrounding affordability and access to medications. If you haven't before, I encourage all of you to check out ASHP's Ambulatory Care Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings as the, such as the Ambulatory Care Career Tool, Certification Resources, Rotation Guides, Guidelines, Policies, and Information on Billing and Reimbursement. Be sure to also become a member of the section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners Connect community where we can exchange ideas and ask questions from your peers. Thanks again for tuning in to this session and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. ASHP Official.